You're listening to TIP. Hey, how's everyone doing out there? It's that time of the quarter where we get the mastermind group back together and talk about what's happening in the investing world. I'm always looking forward to the quarterly mastermind meetings, and it's so much fun for us because they are the least scripted episodes, and the conversation just goes everywhere. And we talk about diverse industries like airlines, railroads, pharmaceutical companies, and we even suddenly transition into a discussion about Bitcoin Cash. As you can likely tell, the group had a lot of fun recording this episode, and we hope you enjoy it too. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. Great to have everyone with us. These are the episodes that we really look forward to doing because we get bring back our friends to sit around and chat and we can beat each other up as to why something might be a good or bad investment. So we have Hari Ramachandra with us from Bits Business and executive out there in Silicon Valley working with LinkedIn. We also have Toby Carlisle with us. He's the author of numerous books. Uh, Deep Value is one of them. He has a lot of others. We'll have all those in the show notes. We'll have the link to all of his websites in the show notes. He also has a website called The Acquirer's Multiple. Toby, fantastic to have you with us. And of course, we have Stig here and and myself. So let's go ahead and get this thing started. All right. So the way that we go about this is the way we always do. So so each of the members will give their pitch and then it's up to the group to come up with new questions, say what they like and why they don't like the pick. Who wants to go first or who dares to go first? I'll give it a bash. I don't mind. All right. So Toby. All right. Hit this up there, Toby. Get the bets out, guys. (laughs) My pick is Gilead, G-I-L-D is the ticker. It's one that I've picked before and it's one I get lots of questions about. So I thought I'd go back to it. I think when I first picked it, it was sort of in the high 60s, ran up as high as 85. It's run back now to around low 70s, 71, $72. So people were asking me at 85, they're asking me again now. So I'll just talk about it. It's something that I still hold. I still think it's cheap. It hasn't really moved that much from where I bought it originally about six months ago. For those who don't know the stock, it's one of those stocks that two years ago, it was a hugely popular stock. And if you go to any of the message boards at the time, it was one of the ones that everybody was kind of riding to victory. It was trading around 120 bucks, 120 bucks plus. Over the last two years, it's had this sort of terrible trajectory straight into the ground and it's basically halved over two years. And now it's one of those stocks that everybody hates because it's one of those stocks that everybody held a couple of years ago. And they remember how badly they've all been burnt on it. The reason for buying it two years ago was that it had this kind of stellar earnings growth that plateaued. And the earnings have basically been falling since then. And it looks like they're going to continue to fall for another 12 months to two years. So basically, it's a biopharmaceutical company. Their specialty is antiviral drugs. So that means they treat particularly hepatitis B, hepatitis C, the flu, HIV. The problem for them has been that they've treated the hepatitis C, which was their big moneymaker so successfully that they've cured everybody who they've treated with it rather than sort of drip feeding them this over a long period of time and building a really good business. So that's a great thing for the people who have received the treatment, not so great for the shareholders in the company right now. My sympathies are with the people who are receiving the treatment rather than the shareholders, but I'm a new shareholder, so we're looking for new revenues for growth. The things that I like about this stock, 
It's a $94 billion market capitalization as of today. Enterprise value is about $95 billion. So net debt of about a billion dollars, but it's got $40 billion in cash kind of balancing that, that off. So it's very, very liquid. It's hugely cash flow positive because they've got this drug that's basically in runoff. They're trying to find new sources of revenue, but they're generating cash flow in the meantime. So the chances of this going away as a business is very, very low. If I look at any of the statistical measures of distress or earnings manipulation or fraud or any of those things, there's nothing there. There's no indication. The return on invested capital, which is not a measure that I think is particularly useful most of the time, but in something like this where it's got patents, it's got various other protections, it is a kind of a useful metric. It's incredibly high. It sits around 73% return on invested capital. Free cash flow yields around 15%. So when the return on invested capital is that much higher than the free cash flow yield, that's sort of an indication that the stock is probably way too cheap. And so I think fair value for this stock, probably around... 100 to 105 dollars sort of at the low end and with the stock trading around 70 dollars i think there's a fairly wide margin of safety there i think potentially it could be worth more over the next few years but the issue is going to be declining revenues for the sort of immediate future so anybody who buys this you know next quarter you're going to see revenues a little bit lower the quarter after that revenues are going to be a little bit lower the only thing that you have going for you in this is that it's incredibly cheap and it's generating huge amounts of cash flow and it's generating this incredibly high return on invested capital. So for me, this is exactly the kind of stock that I like. It might take a few years to work its way out, but by the time that the future is going to look a little bit brighter, it's going to be a much more expensive stock. I'm so happy you brought up this stock pick, Toby. I've been asked about this pick for at least a year, and I want to say it's been on my radar for yeah two or, or something like what you were also saying, because it has been a very like stock and then it became a very cheap stock. And for me, I guess it always comes back to, I don't know how to value patents. For me, it's too complicated whenever I read through the financial statements and also look into the business model in terms of figuring out how sustainable it is. So Toby, could you talk to us about your process in terms of valuating patents? Sometimes I take a slightly different approach to these sort of stocks. The future is difficult for me to foresee. I think a lot of other people have much better crystal balls than I do, but I have no idea what it looks like. For me, I sort of have to look at the immediate past. And for this stock, it, it doesn't look great. The revenues have been falling, but there, there are a few things that I should have mentioned. One of them is that they've used some of their enormous cash pile to buy another company for about $12 billion. That'll start generating earnings and income and sometime next year, I think. And then that's, it, it's not going to replace the, the HCV income, but it's going to come in at about a quarter of what the HCV income is, which HCV is about $8 billion. This thing, I think, gets to one or two over the next few years. And then it continues to grow. I think that it's one of those things, the cash flow is very strong. The company's got lots of cash on its balance sheet. It has bought back some stock. All of those are things that indicate to me that it's got longevity and the potential for something good to happen. And I'm just sort of at this price, I think it's so cheap that I'm prepared to sort of buy it and see if something good can happen. Following up on Stick's question about patents, what percentage of their revenue is from the HIV portfolio of their business? The reason I'm asking is their patents for HIV-related patents are supposed to start expiring starting 2017 through 2021. Uh, what are your concerns in that and how can they compensate for those expirations? 
the earnings are falling because they're negotiating the contracts for the sales of this into the future. For me, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how they replace it, but they are looking for ways to do it and they have the firepower there to do it. They're generating lots of free cash flow already from the existing portfolio. So I sort of think it's one of those things that revenues continue to fall, but as a deep value guy, I, I don't really mind that so much because the balance sheet is pretty strong. Free cash flows there, still earning lots on its existing portfolio and very, very cheap. So Toby, I know nothing about technical analysis, so I'm just going to throw that out there. But whenever I'm looking at this and I'm looking at the top line that we're all talking about and how it's contracting and it's going down, and you kind of take a look at the chart and you're seeing the price chart, which I think this is the first time I've ever talked about a price chart on the show in 165 episodes. <laughs> when you look at the price chart, I, I guess the pattern of the price is it just keeps going down. And you're not seeing much volume trying to stop that from happening. And so whenever I'm looking at a business like this that's really big and has to do a lot of R&D, a billion dollars in R&D to create a new product, and then they have to go through all the marketing, and then they have to go through everything to try to make it a successful drug to potentially start growing that top line again. I think they've got a tough road ahead of themselves before you're going to see the price kind of normalize to start taking off again. There could be something, there could be a breakthrough in some type of R&D that they're doing right now that could make it pop on, on a whim. But for me, I guess I love the price and I love the valuation on this. I'm not going to lie. Whenever I did the intrinsic value on this, I got a very high number, double digit number. But my concerns are more on the technical side of their performance on their income statement and my expectation of what it's going to look like in a year from now. I think it's going to continue to contract and I don't see anything in the volume of people buying that's going to maybe reverse that anytime soon. So I guess for me, I, I wouldn't buy this, even though it looks really juicy from a return standpoint, like from a value investing standpoint, it looks really juicy. But I guess I'm going to continue to watch it. And if I feel like I see a large spike in the volume, I might miss out on a little bit, but I think it has more to go. I, I think it has more to fall before you're going to start to see the price return. That's my personal opinion. Revs are definitely going to be lower this time next year. Almost certainly. The thing is that by the time this sort of gets its, when you can see the runway for this thing, the price is going to be a lot higher. It's lower than it was a few months ago, but it's higher than it was sort of six months ago. So I don't know if that means anything to the technical guys. They can shoot me a tweet and tell me. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure no matter what, what comes out of the technical side, it probably won't be. Yeah, I, I just need to be quiet because I don't know anything about technical. One of the reasons is you can have a look at the price chart from earlier this year. Johnny Hopkins, who writes the Acquirer's multiple blog posts, he wrote a post up about Gilead because he was excited about it. And he said, I want to post this up. And I wanted to wait until the earnings data got populated into the spreadsheet from our data providers. And in that sort of period of time, it went, it kind of bounced really quickly from 64, where Johnny had found it, kind of up to 67. And then it looked like it was going to get away. And I, I felt really bad for Johnny because he'd picked it really well and it seemed, looked like it had taken off. As it happens, as so often happens with these stocks, you do get another chance to buy them. But it's one of those things that I think I've just discovered over a long time trying to buy and sell stocks that if you like the price today, you got to do it today because you might not get it tomorrow. They can take off really, really quickly. So I agree with everything you just said. Let me ask you this then. Are you buying at small volume at this point and slowly working your way into it? Or are you just taking a, a decent sized position right now? 
I bought a chunk of it and I bought some leaps when I six months ago or so. It was it wasn't the bottom, but it was it was in the high sixties, I think, at the time that I did it. And it got a little bit cheaper after that, and it's sort of taken off since. I have had a pretty full portfolio until today, so I'm going to revisit it again. It's probably something I'll buy some more of. I guess what I'm getting from Toby's point of view is that the price is so low that there are a lot of upside, including acquisitions, which we didn't talk about, but they can be a potential target for acquisition and a quick payoff from that aspect as well. That's a good point. All right. So I think that concludes Toby's stock pick and the stock ticker is G-I-L-D. And we're just going to go around the horn here. So Hari, do you want to go next? Great. So Hari, you're up. Always fun to sit around and chat with you guys. And uh, I'm ready to be beaten up. Uh, (laughs) My pick today is Union Pacific, which is a railroad company. There is a lot of talk about tariffs and restrictions on imports from Mexico and whatnot. And Union Pacific does a lot of business with Mexico in the sense that a lot of companies, especially automobile manufacturers, they transport a lot of their parts through railroads. And Union Pacific and BNSF are the two big railroads on the West. And for those of you who are not familiar with railroads in U.S., there are different classes of railroads. And back in the days, that is before 1980, there were many railroads because of a lot of regulations against consolidation. However, things changed. And from then on, it's called as the Staggers Act. From then on, the consolidation started happening and a lot of synergies were realized and the number of railroads also started reducing. So today, there are only a handful of class one railroads. On the West, we have Union Pacific and BNSF, which is now a wholly owned subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway. And on the East, it is CSX and Norfolk Southern. Of course, there is Kansas City Railroad as well, which is a small player. And some of the interesting facts about railroads is that about 40% of all the intercity freight volume are transported by rail today. And Railroad today employs around 185,000 jobs. It used to be 1.5 million 100 years back. So they have definitely worked a lot on productivity and efficiency. And one train replaces around 250 trucks on the highway. And also some of the other interesting facts about railroads in terms of their efficiency is that a freight can be moved 479 miles on one gallon of fuel. So that's much more efficient and also safer way to transport freight than trucks. In terms of what they carry, around 19% is coal. So coal is a major contributor to their revenue. Then chemicals, grains, and food, and then assembly parts, motor vehicles, and then finished goods and miscellaneous. So that's kind of the overall contributors to revenue. Union Pacific specifically operates mostly in the Western region, as I said. Most of their volume comes on the ports, ports of entry, which are on Los Angeles, Long Beach, on the West Coast. And they and BNSF pretty much are neck to neck. Uh, If you look at their revenue, number of miles of tracks, 
BNSF and UNP have a duopoly on the West Coast. One of the interesting facts about railroads is obviously their moat. It's really hard to create another railroad because of all the regulations in terms of land acquisitions and building out the infrastructure is concerned. UNP has been expanding quite a bit in the last couple of years, and also it has increased its overall efficiency and productivity. The reason I picked it is there are some uncertainties going ahead in the next couple of months, and based on how the policies on imports are shaped, it might impact railroads and specifically Union Pacific and BNSF. So this will be a stock to watch. It would be good for us to understand what are the different sources of revenue for this railroad. And if there is a panic about this particular stock, and if people are ready to throw the baby with the bathtub, it might be interesting pick for some of us. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, 
and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So Hari, for me, when I'm looking through this, I go straight to the numbers. And although I think that the competitive advantage piece of it, I completely agree with everything that you said. I don't see the the revenues really contracting at all. I think that they're going to continue to be able to produce decent cash flow. But the premium that people are paying to own it today, for me, is not a buy. I'm kind of curious what you think the intrinsic value through like an IRR is. But for me, I'm coming up with, and I think I'm being very liberal in my assessment as to what I think they're able to do into the future, basically saying I, I'm giving them much more a benefit of the doubt than being conservative with my numbers. And I'm still coming up with like about a three and a half percent return at the current price. So basically saying what they've got today, they can continue to sustain into the future. That's my worst case. My best case is saying that they're going to grow at 7%. And those are the numbers that I'm using as my projections into the future. And I'm still coming up with three and a half percent. And so I guess my question back to you is if that's a true statement, let's just assume that that's a true can get three and a half percent. Why not just buy an S&P 500? Because I think you're going to get the same return and you're going to have less risk. That's a good point. I'm not recommending a buy at these levels. My assumptions are also that this is not a stock that I would buy hoping that they will grow their revenue at a faster pace from here. In fact, I'm not even assuming any growth in revenue. I am looking at them as a place to park my cash and earn some dividend. It's more like a income generating opportunity, but not at this price. I would be interested in this stock when it is in the lower 70s. That's when it becomes much more compelling and interesting. But however, it's it's good to study this now because I'm expecting that there will be a lot of rumors and news around banning Mexican imports or tariffs on Mexican imports that can drastically impact the revenue of Union Pacific because they're already low on their revenues from coal, which is slowly dwindling. And that is being compensated by the revenue from imports from Mexico. So there is definitely some headwinds. So it's your number that you that you quoted there. You're looking for something in the $70 price range. And whenever I put that number into my intrinsic value assessment, I get around an 8% return if you can buy it for like 70 bucks. But the problem is, is it's not 70 bucks. It's $115 right now. So I'm with you, Hari, as far as wait until around that price range. But you know, by the time it gets to $70, there might be some other deals in the market that are way better than an 8 or 9% return. I also want the audience to know that right now, the dividend on this is giving you a 2% yield at the current price. So uh, that's not a bad dividend. And I think that all the money that you're going to make on this from now to moving forward at that price is really going to be the dividend. I was just going to throw some more thoughts at you on this one. If I look at it on a Petrosky, Altman, Benish, which are my statistical measures to determine if it's in any financial distress, if it's financially strong, if there's any sort of earnings manipulation. So there's none of that, which is always a good sign. Market cap's around 91 billion. Enterprise value is about 106 billion, which means that it's carrying sort of $15 billion in net debt, net obligations, which I don't typically love. If I look at on an acquirer's multiple basis, it's trading a little bit over 13 times, which for a good business, for a really good business, that could be about fair value. I think for this business, I think it's either just at fair value or it's just a little bit below fair value the way that I would calculate it. 
turning on invested capital around 9% and the return that's available is about 3%. So it's a little bit overvalued for me, but there are some things that are nice. One of them has got a very stable earnings trajectory. So it is one of those things that if you could get it at the right price, which $70 is probably the upper limit of, of the right price, but that's well within the possibility of something that you would do. It's probably something that you can buy there and then let it sit for a long time in an account just to sort of accumulate and grow. So I think it's a really nice fundamental stock. A little bit worried about the level of debt that it's carrying. It's just not something that I love. I think I'm not sorry. I shouldn't say I'm worried about it. It's just not something that I like to see. But otherwise, I think it's a good fundamental business, just a little bit expensive. Yeah. So for me, I don't have too many things to add. I also ran it through our intrinsic value calculator. And whenever I look at it, we're probably around called three or four percent. So I have very similar results as as Preston. In terms of debt that Toby just mentioned, I don't think I'm as concerned. So you can have different types of obligations that might be more burdensome for the company than others. And if I look at at least the interest-bearing debt, it's not too bad. You still have a coverage ratio above 10, which basically just means that you can pay the interest expenses with your operating income at least 10 times. And even though that the debt has slightly increased. I don't think it's a it's a huge issue. So I think, Hari, that, that the feedback is really to sum it up is you great business. Not a lot to say about that. You bring up a lot of great points about local monopoly and, and perhaps pricing power to some extent, even though it's regulated. But really, the valuation is really uh, the big red flag here. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with you. And one piece of information for the audience is that the previous month in October, U.S. Class 1 railroads together hauled more intermodal containers in October than during any previous month in the history of railroads. So obviously the valuations are basically reflecting the recent trends and the recent numbers that are coming out of all the railroads. All the railroads are today valued either fairly as Toby was alluding to or a little bit higher than fair value. So it's definitely not something that I would buy right now, but I would definitely watch them. Whenever I look at the revenue, and I guess you can say that about a lot of college utility companies, you'll see that it's more or less flat. And you also said before that you don't expect perhaps growth at all. Is it even possible in this business to grow your, your top line being as a local monopoly as a Union Pacific Corporation really is? If you look at their revenue growth, it pretty much tracks the GDP and also it tracks the import and export dynamics between US and Mexico. In fact, I have a chart in my analysis which essentially tracks the dollar amount of US and Mexico import export. And the volumes, the freight volumes that UNP is hauling and their revenue from that particular part. And another interesting aspect of UNP is they own a significant percentage in Mexico's biggest railroad. So they have some growth coming in from Mexico as well. But again, right now, I think everybody recognizes these facts, whatever I'm saying. So everything is baked into the stock price. Okay, yeah. so Stig and I, I, you know, Stig, go ahead and talk about your pick because I didn't know what your pick was until just a couple minutes before when I was doing a little bit of research on your pick and I had to smile because we almost have identical picks with, and this was not planned in any way, <laughs> but uh, go ahead. Let's, let's hear yours first, Stig. 
So uh, my pick is Southwest Airlines, and the stock ticker is LUV. So what's not to like about that? It's a major airline, and together with Delta United and American, they control 70% of the U.S. market. They're the biggest, at least measured and originated, passengers boarded, and they provide scheduled air transportation throughout the U.S. and also in near international markets. One thing to mention just before we talk about the industry is that they have 44 consecutive years of profitability, and that's, that's almost unheard of, especially if you talk about a, an industry like the airline industry. Some of the uh, key industry ratios to look at, that's the, uh, first of all, the load factor. So the load factor, that's basically the, uh, how they fill their seats per mile. And if we look across the board, we're looking at something slightly above 80% in North America, 80.7 to be exact. LOV is one of the best airlines out there with 83.6. Unfortunately, uh, the very best company is Delta. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, Preston, because hmm. it's your pick. Uh, <laughs> it's at 86, they're top of the class. Where Southwest Airlines really makes its mark is on customer satisfaction. And if you look at the airlines, that's it's top ranked of all the major airlines, number two and three, JetBlue and Alaska, and then, if I might add, Delta as number four. But very interesting, and, and people are probably not surprised when I say that United Airlines, they're not doing that great in the customer satisfaction survey here. The oil price is very important, and it's a high percentage of the operating expenses. So it fluctuates a lot. If you look at the past 15 years for Southwest, it has been everything from 16.5 back in 2003 and up almost 38% of the operating expenses in 2011. Today, it's hoovering around the low 20s because of the relatively low oil price that we see. That's uh, another interesting uh, factor to consider. So if you think the oil price will stay down for a long time, it, it might be a more appealing pig. And if you have a different opinion, you might come up with a different expected yield. The rotation for the industry is really not good. I don't know if, if people remember Warren Buffett buying into airlines a few decades ago, and he has continuously said almost ever since, I did say almost because he actually just bought into airlines, but he used to say that he has an 800 number that he used to call and, and say, hey, my name is Warren and I'm an airaholic. Because he just loves buying into airlines, at least at that time. And it, it didn't pan out for him as well in the 80s as he had hoped. Typically, it's also a hated industry because of the, the labor is unionized. So it's a, it's a tricky business to be in. It definitely need to put that out there. There have been quite a few changes in the airline industry over the few decades, though, which is probably also one of the reasons why you see investors like Warren Buffett and other investors, too, going into the industry. Why it's still a very competitive business, there are fewer airlines today than there used to be. It typically provides more monopoly and thereby also pricing power in different regions. Like if you are in the Dallas area, you might primarily be flying American or if you're in New Jersey, you might be flying United. So you do have some, some pricing power. But even more importantly, the load factor over the past 15 years has gone from 70 above 80%. So it's been very important that you've seen this consolidation in the industry. If I look specifically at LOV, I see almost no debt. 
almost no dividend either, but that's really not that important. I think that they the way they allocate the capital is is really good. You see a share buyback around five percent. But perhaps the thing I really like to highlight is the mode. If you look at the competitive advantage of LOV, I think it is the culture. And even though it's very hard to quantify the importance of a culture, I think that is one of the very reasons why you see this customer satisfaction being so high for this company. This is probably an anecdote more than anything, but the company does not allow any type of art on the walls of the headquarters. Instead, they only allow pictures of employees, friends, and family. We spoke to Moniz Paprai months ago uh, about this pick, and he talked about how at the annual meeting, people would give each other hugs, which is typically something you don't see unless you uh, team up with our crew in Omaha, I guess. It's a very appealing company, both from a mental standpoint, but also for the, for the future prospects. But I'm curious to hear what the group has to say before we, we talk about the potential growth and the catalyst for the stock. I'm a big fan of the airlines. Uh, they've all come into the Aquarius multiple screener, Delta, both, and LUV. LUV is just sitting slightly outside of the screener at the moment. But I'll tell you a few things, that the, the reasons that I, that I like it. Market cap's $32 billion, enterprise value. 32 billion, so almost no debt on an acquirer's multiple of 9.6 times. So that the most expensive stock in the screener at the moment is 9.2 times. So that tells you how close it is to appearing in the screener. Of all the airlines, it's probably the best run airline. And that's reflected in, in a few things. It's got excellent return on invested capital. It's among the best companies out there on that basis. I think the price is excellent too, where it is. The only Two concerns that I have, free cash flow yield is very low. So it's generating a little bit under 5% on a free cash flow basis. And if I look at my statistical measures, if I look at my Petrosky, Altman, Benish, which are financial distress, financial strength, earnings manipulation, fraud, etc., it's fine on financial distress. It's fine. It's not a manipulator, but Petrosky F-score is four out of a possible nine. So that's sort of Towards the low end, I'd have to dig into that and find out exactly why that is, but it's just just an observation. Otherwise, I think it's a good pick. So Stig, this one also I agree. I think it's a decent pick, but I'm curious what you got for the intrinsic value as, as far as what you think the yield is based off the current price. Yeah. So whenever I did that, and I, I think I was conservative. Now, we haven't talked too much about the growth opportunities. I put 7% as my upper band for with a 25% probability, uh, 3% as my most likely growth rate, 60%. The reason why I came up with 3% is that the expectations for until I think it's 2034, that's around 3.3, which is, it is hard to predict and yet it's not. It has to do with immigration, it has to do with GDP growth and it would not be unreasonable to to expect 3%. Whether or not Southwest could capture that, that's always up for discussion. And then I have a, a minus two in my lower band because I'm just very pessimistic, I guess. And I come up with an internal rate of return or expected rate of return of 7.2%, which is not great. It's not something I'm super excited about, but I think a 7.2% in times like this, I think that might be... If you have some sort of certainty for that, might not be too bad. Luckily, I had a chance to speak with my good friend Toby about this just last week. We talked about whether or not 
actually 7% was the upper limit, given how the, the market is right now. I don't know. It is very modest, but it seems to me to be good if you're paying the opportunity cost of the market. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about your intrinsic value calculation, Preston. I had very similar numbers to you as far as the bands. An adjustment that I made, I think that their free cash flow that they had for this past year coming in at $2 billion is what I had for this past year. seemed like it was a little uncharacteristic of the previous period of time. And so I, I felt like that was a little high. So I adjusted that down. And whenever I did that, I ended up getting around a 5 to 6% return for the IRR on the company. So, I mean... <laughs> If we split the difference, we just say it's somewhere in between, you know, five and, and your seven percent. We're we're at six percent. So, you know, if the market's priced at three, and we think we can get six with this, double the return of the S and P five hundred, that becomes a hard decision to go into an individual stock pick, especially something that's highly regulated, highly unionized, very susceptible to commodity prices as they fluctuate and change. I don't know. I would probably buy a little bit of it, but I, it would not be a big position. Is I guess you're, you're the abominable no man. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, <laughs> I'm just a little hesitant because the returns aren't really like extremely fat, and it is a great business. I'm not going to lie. This is probably the best airline company out there. But yeah, it all comes down to the valuation. That's basically what you're saying, Preston. Just to provide a few comments to the discussion about free cash flow. I actually think I was conservative whenever I used the current number as the benchmark. I don't think it's necessarily a low number when I see the possibilities moving ahead. And we can talk about more of that later. But the reason why I also want to say that is if you look at the age of the fleets for Southwest, they've done massive capital investments. And the average age is 11.8 years, whereas for, let's say, Delta, which is uh, of the four major, they have the oldest fleet of 17.2. Now, it is actually part of Delta's strategy often to have an older fleet and then pay more maintenance costs, but then not as much in terms of the cost of some of the acquisitions. But it's something that, I guess it's my way of saying that if I look at the numbers, I don't think that the current level we're seeing now is high. I just wanted to bring up the point that what's the downside from here? I was just looking at how they did during the 2007-2008 recession. I don't see any dip in their revenue during that time. Yeah, It's very hard to believe that the airline is recession-proof. So it's counterintuitive. The data at least is counterintuitive to me. When you look at the numbers, I, I know at least for the Delta numbers, when you go back and you look at 2008-2009, the revenues were not impacted at all. In fact, the revenues went up from 2007 to 2008, and they went up again from 2008 to 2009, which I was blown away by that. But their bottom line suffered tremendously, and most of that was because the oil prices went up to $150 a barrel during the 2008 period of time. So I'm with you. I thought the exact same thing, Hari, but the numbers were telling me a different story. So I guess the expectation moving forward is that if you have another credit contraction, that the revenues probably wouldn't be impacted too much with the airlines, which is surprising. But who knows? We'll see what happens. Yeah, and the thing is, I'm very excited to see what's going to happen the next few years. So Southwest only just started to grow outside of, of the U.S. a few years ago, and it still only accounts for 4% of the top line. And that's really the, the focus now. Typically, the margins are not as good, also because the load factor is not as high for international flights. But there's much more room to grow for Southwest than for the other airlines. So 
even though I always like to be conservative in terms of my estimates, that's something I do put an emphasis on. Now, keep in mind that I did say that my upper band was just 7% and I only give that 25% probability. The analysts at Wall Street, they expect a consensus around 10% growth for this company. The historical growth rate is pretty strong. Last 10 years, it's done, if I look at the the data here, I think it was like, it's more than 20%, which is another thing that I find, I find it difficult to believe, but I'm I'm looking at 24.5. On an annual basis, it wasn't growing at 20%, was it? I guess for me, when I'm just looking, because on our tool here, we plot the free cash flow. So we can like see graphically what they look like. And then we kind of interpolate that line into the future with another line that we can graphically see. And I mean, if I put in 10%, if you put in 20%, it'd be, it would not look right. I can tell you that much. No. Well, so if you look at it, like the 10 year average here with revenue, uh, just last year uh, would be around eight and a half percent, but then the operating income we around like 15%. I mean, so it might not be 20%, but it's definitely, I guess, a lot more than most people would give you credit for. So, you know, again, yes, it it does come down to the valuation. Uh, Is this a great airline company? It is. And we should probably have bought whenever Warren Buffett did. And he he acquired his, I think, 7 8% stake in both Delta and Southwest, if I might add. But the price isn't too much different from whenever he got in. I mean, it's a little bit. It's definitely higher than whenever he got in, yeah. but it's not a lot higher. You know, in the summer, both of these picks went way higher and they've come back quite a bit. I know for mine, for Delta, it was as high as $55 and now it's back down to 48 So, I mean, it's contracted quite a bit and I think the opportunity's there. I'm curious. Let's transition over to my airline that I brought to the table. And I promise you, I had no idea Stig was coming to the table with an airline tonight. I was... I really laughed whenever I saw that and I was actually coming with an airline as well. So Stig, I'm curious, what did you get for your intrinsic value for Delta before I even start my pitch? I want to hear what you got. Yeah. So I didn't know that you would pick Delta before (laughs) before I picked LOV. I actually came in a little higher for Delta than I did with the LOV. I think I came around eight, eight and a half, something like that. I don't think the airline is as good, but the valuation is definitely more interesting. Yeah. So I'm getting a higher valuation than you. And I think I'm looking at it with the same conservative eye as, you know, whenever I was looking at the last one and I'm getting 10% on this. So when you go from six to 10%, you know, I mean, that, I think that's a significant jump in the uh, return. And, you know, when I'm thinking about a person that's booking their airline, I don't think that a person, if they can save a hundred bucks by going on Delta opposed to going on Southwest, I think they're going to go on Delta every day of the week for the most part, especially when you get into some of the more expensive tickets. I think people are looking to save money way over the brand of the airline. I might be wrong. So for me, when I'm thinking through that, the competitive advantage of the brand and all the quality that we talk about with Southwest, I don't know that I'm necessarily willing to take a cut in the yield that I expect to get for that to happen simply because I don't think that it's a competitive advantage. I mean, it's definitely a competitive advantage. Don't let me go to the extreme here, but I don't think it's as strong of a competitive advantage as what some people might give to some other type of industry. So that's why I think this is probably a better pick than yours. A lot better. (laughs) (laughs) Just joking. But I do think that the return's a little bit fatter. I could get into some of the numbers, something that I think 
that has caused the airlines to maybe pull back a little bit from where they were at in the summer is when you start looking at the uh, revenue, when you look at the revenue for Delta from 2001 up until the year 2016, the revenues had increased every single year during that period of time, which I find just amazing. 2016 was the first year that you had the revenues actually contract just a touch. Looking at the trend for this year in 2017, it looks like the revenues are going to go higher than they were last year, which I think is good. But I think that maybe that's why you've been seeing the price maybe not pop as much as what we probably expected a year ago. Just to kind of put some context on this for people. So the price of Delta right now is $49 a share. The earnings or the profit that you get for each one of those shares is $5.79. So good luck finding anything like that on the US stock market. As far as I'm concerned, I think that you're going to have a very challenging time trying to find a company that's giving you that much profit for the price that you're paying, especially for something that's this large and this stable. The debt to equity on Delta is a 0.5 when the rest of the industry is a 1.3. So their competitors are more than double the leverage than Delta. So in general, I think that those are all positives. This is something that I'm definitely taking a position in. It's not a very sizable position, but it's a position. And I think that the negatives here, the free cash flow seems to be holding pretty strong. It's growing, but it's not growing at a rapid clip. And I think I already mentioned whenever Stig was talking there, I'm not a real big fan of how regulated this industry is but I am a fan of how much it's been consolidating recently. And I think that that's one of the reasons why you're seeing it as a decent place to be based on the prices and the, and the profits that you're seeing. So that's my pitch. I'm curious what everyone else thinks. I was just going to run through the numbers very quickly as I saw the market cap 35 billion, enterprise value 41 and a half. So it's carrying a little bit of net debt. But as Preston points out, still very low debt to equity. I've calculated to 0.6, but Acquirers multiple under seven times, so it's slightly cheaper than Southwest, which was Stig's pick. So I think on a valuation basis, it might be a little bit weaker. I still think it's too cheap. So it's I pegged the DCF around uh, $60, $65. The growth rates haven't been as strong as Southwest, but I think that the cheapness makes it a slightly more interesting pick. Petrosky F-score is around five out of nine, which is slightly better than average. So it's, it, that's, that's not too bad. One thing that's worth raising the Altman Z score, which is the measure of financial distress, it has it in the distress zone. That could be, sometimes it's just that the nature of the, the business model slightly confounds these statistical models. So it's not something that's necessarily a concern. It's just when I see something like that, it just tells me that I have to dig into it a little bit more. I, I haven't had the time to do that at the moment, but it's just something to bear in mind. And if it continues to deteriorate to understand why, but when I look at the other metrics, it doesn't bother me that pretty good return on invested capital doing much better than its free cash flow yield, so it's undervalued. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. 
This and other information can be found in the funds prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So just to sum up, Toby, if I put you in this ungrateful situation of deciding what to invest in, giving the uh, current valuation, would you pick Delta in that case? Warren Buffett, greatest investor alive, probably greatest investor of the last four five generations, I don't know, as far back as anybody can tell. He took a pass on that and he bought a basket of them. So there's no chance that I'm going to pick one over the other. <laughs> That's true. How about you, Hari? Now you heard our pitches. What a uh, squirmy way to get out of that question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hiding behind Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I had a question actually, like we are talking about the consolidation, everything growing. Why is the market not seeing it? Is it something that folks are seeing in the sense that it has been historically prone to competition and irrational participants? What are the odds that will not happen again? 
I think it's just been known as, as such a hated sector. I think everyone latches onto the narratives that we're saying about the unions, about the government regulation and all that stuff that even as the price becomes attractive, a lot of people are like, yeah, but no one ever makes money on airlines. And then they just stop their analysis there. So that's what I think it is, Hari, but, but who knows? I, I don't know. Part of the problem is that they have this massive operating leverage and they are levered to the oil price, which is currently low. And I, I was surprised that they're not as levered to the economy as, I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's another bias of mine, but I, I do think that oil moves up, it might be a different com- complexion, but I think you can see when you fly, I fly a lot. When I fly, the plane is full every single time I fly. So uh, business is good. One thing about the culture that I do want to uh, point out and also just to make sure that it's not, I guess, misinterpreted is that I think that the culture is the most important thing to any organization. And I guess Preston had a good point whenever he was saying, uh, you know, if I can save, call a hundred bucks or whatever on Delta, why wouldn't I fly with them? And obviously you would. I don't see culture like that. I mean, it, it's kind of like the same reasons why Bridgewater is so successful. I don't think people are necessarily willing to pay higher fees to have Bridgewater handle the money because the culture is strong. I think it's the other way around. I think you are building a stronger company, whether it's in how you train your company, whether it's how efficient you grow, if you have the right culture in place. And it's more like a trickle down to the customer rather than the other way around. And, and I think that's something I want to pay a premium for. And I know this probably, I don't know if that makes sense whenever we talk about the calculator and we talk about whether or not we should adjust our growth rates. And if we have a higher growth, if we have a stronger culture, I just think at the end of the day, given that we know how important it is with taxes and moving around in your portfolio, that if you want to hold something for the long run, it's very, very difficult not to hold a company like LOV or Bridgewater, whatever you want to call it because the culture is so strong. Hari, I see you have a point. Yeah, Stig, to follow up on your point about culture and the service they provide, I think it can have a tangible benefit if it reduces the search cost for customers. Based on my experience and a lot of folks I interact with, here in the West Coast, especially in the Northern California, Most of us don't even think about other airlines when we are buying tickets to LA, for example, or any any place that is nearby, because we have got enough trust that the prices are usually fair or competitive. So that goes to the fact what Stig was mentioning, that culture in itself, the service in itself will not win customers. But the price point is also important. So the customers in the airline industry are very price sensitive. So whatever you do should be on top of the price. You cannot compromise the price. So the culture will not give you pricing power. I don't think any of the airlines have pricing power. All right. So did you guys have anything else that you wanted to talk, current event or anything like that that's just pressing? Uh, Harry, you have something? Go ahead, throw it out there. I wanted to throw at you a couple of points so to just get your reaction. Number one, Bitcoin Cash is making a lot of news nowadays. I see a lot of folks in the Valley are very excited about Bitcoin Cash. The second thing I wanted to also throw at you is Ray Dalio, since we are talking about him, recently made a huge purchase in gold, which was what, 573% increase in his stake or something like that. What do you guys make of this? So Hari, you just turned this into another hour episode here. 
<laughs> well, I've got some hardcore opinions about the first one. So Bitcoin Cash versus Bitcoin. So let's just give a little context to people if they're not familiar with this. So we're obviously talking about cryptocurrencies. Back in August, there was a hard fork that occurred between uh, Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin. And a gentleman by the name of Roger Ver was behind the Bitcoin Cash fork. And the big debate goes down to why it ended up forking is because there's one camp of people that think that Bitcoin should be for everyday purchases so that you should be able to go out and buy a cup of coffee with Bitcoin with your smartphone. There's another camp of people that say Bitcoin should replace gold and it should be what central banks ultimately store instead of gold itself. And it should be the new monetary baseline on a global level. I fall into the latter camp. I think that when you think about what Bitcoin's trying to do, it's trying to fix the monetary baseline so that these central banks cannot continue to print. So I guess this is the question I often ask people. What is Bitcoin? What's the purpose or what's the problem that it's trying to solve? I don't think that it's necessarily trying to solve everyday coffee purchases. I don't think that most people would say that there's an issue there as far as they're being taxed too much on the purchase through the currency itself. So I don't see a fundamental issue there. Where I do see a fundamental issue is that right now, every developed country around the world has a fiat currency that's pegged to nothing. And these governments can continue to print at ridiculous levels. And since the currency is not pegged to anything, Bitcoin solves that fundamental problem. And so we could go into this a whole lot more, but we'd get into block sizes. And when you're talking Bitcoin Cash and the way that they're scaling this with an eight megabit block, that in the end creates a very big and chunky blockchain 10, 20, 30 years from now. If their solution to scaling is to just increase the size of the blocks that are produced every 10 minutes, in the end, individual people can't mine that or can't keep the actual blockchain on their computer. And so then that becomes a security concern because now you're not having something that's going to be decentralized. In the end, you'll have something that's centralized, which actually doesn't solve the initial problem with the central banking part that I'm talking about. So I'm a Bitcoin fan, but I am not a Bitcoin cash fan at all. So I'm curious what you're hearing out in the Valley, Hari, on this one. One of the speculations in the Valley is that folks in Asia are behind Bitcoin cash. And it's almost like a cryptocurrency for Asia. And Bitcoin is the cryptocurrency for Europe, our West. Well, what it's really coming down to is a miners versus the individual people and a money that'll fix the monetary baseline. So think about it. All these mining pools that are over in China, what do they want? They want more power and control over the currency. So what they're trying to do, and you look at one of the guys who's behind us, he has one of the biggest mining operations there is in the world. And so that's why he's trying to make it bigger blocks, because what does that do? That centralizes the power into his hands and not into the greater good of the people. You know, something that Stig and I read about in the Dahlia book, and there's another uh, book that I read called The Selfish Gene. And it talks about how when something is good for the masses, for everybody, that's the direction that things will move naturally. But whenever things are only good for the individual, the universe works in ways to always destroy that initiative. So, you know, whenever I'm looking at this debate, 
through centralization, through greater power for the miners versus distributed power for everybody and for the greater good of the world, I think that they're swimming against the current with Bitcoin Cash. And I think that the regular blockchain Bitcoin is actually swimming with the current. But that's my that's my opinion. And just as a word of caution to anybody hearing this stuff, I think cryptocurrencies are extremely dangerous and we have no idea what this stuff is or what this is going to become. And if you're actually investing in this stuff, I hope you're not allocating a large portion of your cash flow to it because there's just ridiculous amounts of inherent risk associated with it. But I also believe that with that inherent risk, there is potential enormous upsides with the market caps that a global currency could potentially arise to. I've got a little bit of gold. I don't have any particular view on it other than I think it's a little bit of a hedge. I don't have any Bitcoin. I just don't have these cycles to kind of figure it out. I wish I'd bought some. A few years ago, I had a client who put $10,000 into the ICO of Ethereum because he, he liked Bitcoin and he met the kid. He was in San Francisco. He met the kid who came up with Ethereum. I shouldn't call him a kid, but the, the young guy who came up with Ethereum. He put $10,000 in in the Kickstarter, which is what they described it as. This is before it was kind of called an initial coin offering. And that was worth like $10 million a few months ago. And he was at that stage where he was thinking about the influence of the moon on the tides and how he was going to trade it. So he figured he'd sort of lost his mind. So he sold out the $10,000 into $10 million. That actually happened. Yeah. No, there's a lot wow. of stories. I mean, there's a ton of stories out there like that. In fact, Trace Mayer is a guy that I follow very closely in this space because I think that he uh, has some of the best information out there on it. And uh, Trace was an early adopter, you know, 2010 kind of guy. I think he was buying it at a quarter. And I saw some crazy stuff on Twitter where this guy, they were talking about this S2X fork that didn't happen, by the way. But Trace Mayer said something like, hey, you know, Roger, I'll bet you something like 30,000 Bitcoins, whatever it was. I can't remember what the number of Bitcoins were that he had that he wanted to bet him. And this is just what he was willing to bet. So I don't know what else he had on the side, but the amount came out to be a hundred million dollars. And so like these, some of these early adopters and these guys that have, have bought this back whenever it was a couple pennies, you know, and under a dollar, and now it's trading at $7,200. They are extraordinarily wealthy. And I can only imagine if, because we're talking about when you look at the market cap on this thing, and this is so crazy, when you're looking at the market cap on Bitcoin right now, it's around, I think, 100 and, 120 billion or something like that. If this thing actually becomes a real currency, a global currency, we're talking trillions of dollars here for the market cap because you, you look at what gold is as far as market cap, I want to say it's around four to six trillion dollars in market cap for gold alone. You start talking about derivatives markets, there is 1,600 trillion dollars in derivatives just to kind of give you an idea of how big this is and bitcoin's just at 120 billion so if this thing actually matures and goes to some of these levels these guys that have those kind of positions today and they're already worth 100 million dollars plus there'll be some pretty wealthy people in the world they won't be excited about your delta pick at all Preston. at all <laughs> you'll be like it's not six percent it's 10 well and they'll be yeah you know i, I just met thousand x here over the past few years. So. so I'm looking at the price of Bitcoin. It did 10% today, like literally today. Now it might do negative, <laughs> it might do negative 30% tomorrow, but I did 10% today, which is what we were talking about the whole time about Delta potentially giving us on an annual basis. So a uh, completely different, like I said, 
If you want to invest some money in this stuff, go ahead and do it. But I wouldn't use a large, substantial portion of your free cash flow. But if this thing turns out to be something, you might be able to pay for your house with a very small sum of money uh, invested. Julebs.com bubble, <laughs> Southsea bubble, <laughs> no, housing I, bubble, Bitcoin bubble. And you know, there, I might go down in the books as being criticized heavily for this comment, but I don't see Bitcoin as being anything remotely close to the tool of mania whatsoever. I think that there's actually something here. I think it's yet to be seen which blockchain might emerge as the as the currency. Right now, it sure looks like it's going to be Bitcoin. Yeah, my last comment is, I believe blockchain technology and cryptocurrency are very interesting. However, it's very similar to the early 1900s when there were many automobile companies coming up. And at that point of time, if we had to bet, it would have been very hard. So that makes it very hard to bet on any cryptocurrency right now. And I've been trying to understand this technology and this market, but I'm still not at a place where I'm confident enough to invest in it. I love Buffett's line where he says, uh, you didn't have to know which car company was going to win to know that you wanted to be short the horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't short it. anything. That, that's a catchy uh, quote, though. I guess my point for you, uh, Hari, first of all, would be I don't necessarily buy into that narrative comparing it to car companies because when you're dealing with this, I think there's really strong network effects that take hold when you're dealing with a cryptocurrency that don't exist when you're dealing with like an individual business with cars. Like there's no major, I don't want to say there's no, there's some network effects associated with cars, but as far as picking the right brand of car, I don't see there being network effects associated with that. When you're dealing with a currency on a global scale, I think you start getting into some of these network effects. You know, I can name some of them off, like speculation, merchant adoption, consumer adoption, security, developer mind share, where you're getting the smartest people involved in some of this stuff. And there's there's plenty more. So I think that that's a consideration to maybe move away from that narrative and and think of it maybe a little bit differently, just because of the influence of those network effects that could take place. Anyway, <laughs> all right, so. Guys, I think that concludes our mastermind discussion about stock picks slash Bitcoin cash. And um, if you want to go first, Hari, where can people learn more about what you're currently up to? Same blog, bitsbusiness.com. All right. We'll have a link for that in the show notes. How about you, Toby? Where can people find out more about you? Acquirersmultiple.com. On Twitter at Greenbacked, which has a funny spelling. I know you'll put it in the, in the show notes. And um, Ray Dalio's favorite book, I've just got it out now. It's called The Acquirer's Multiple. It's available <laughs> on Amazon. Is it? No, it's not his favorite book. It's, it's, only, it's his top five, Max. <laughs> uh, hey, we got, just as a side note, we got a note from Ray this week. He listened to our episode that we did as a review of his book. He actually sent us a note on Twitter that he listened to our show. So we were, uh, awesome. yeah, we were super pumped. So Ray, if you're listening to this, we're joking. We're just having a little bit of fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. That was all that we had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. 
To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.